If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair. Was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 9-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> make the case that in the long term, the negative consequences of Kennedy's policies included the Cuban Missile Crisis, war in Vietnam, and the Soviets closing the gap in the arms race. At least to some extent, he was responsible for those things. That was Mark White on the legacy of JFK. As soon as the Queen did die, uh, there was an, and then the word went round, the rumours were going round that he was going to marry Elizabeth. There was a public outcry and there were rumours he poisoned his wife to that end. And that was Alison Weir discussing one of the theories surrounding Elizabeth of York. Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for subscription deals. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of these, please head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. It was 50 years ago this week that one of the defining moments of the 20th century took place. John F. Kennedy, the young, glamorous president of the United States, was shot and killed in Dallas, Texas. 
Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested and charged with the assassination, but was himself killed before he got to stand trial. And to this day, a myriad of theories exist as to the true reason for the killing of JFK. Today, though, we're not going to be discussing the assassination, but rather JFK himself, the man and the president. I've been speaking to historian Mark White, an expert on post-war America, to find out more about JFK. And I began by asking Mark whether he would describe Kennedy as a great president. No. What's interesting about Kennedy is, more than any other president, is the gap that exists between how he's viewed by the American people on the one hand and how he's viewed by historians on the other. And if you look at public opinion polls recent years, last 30 years or whatever, he's consistently rated by the American people one of, one of the greatest presidents in American history. He's often rated, you know, second best behind Lincoln or third best or even the best. But periodically, polls are taken to survey scholarly opinion uh, in, in, in America. And if you look at those, those opinion polls, he is never rated as a great president. He's never bracketed with Lincoln, Washington uh, and Franklin Roosevelt, who are the three presidents always regarded as, as great. And he's, he's always... I think memory says he's always rated lower than someone like Truman. Uh, probably on average in these, these uh, polls of scholarly opinion, Kennedy's regarded as an above, above average president. So in terms of scholarly opinion, he's viewed as above average. And in terms of popular, but in terms of the American people, they still regard him as uh, a great president. So that actually raises the interesting question of why, why is there this gap between scholarly opinion and popular opinion? And maybe we can get into that later, but I think the answer to that is the power of his image, an incredibly seductive, alluring image. But in terms of how, how I view him, I think there are, there are definitely some major achievements, and the, the, the thing that he was excellent at was crisis management. So if you think about the, the positives of Kennedy's presidency, uh, a lot of them do relate to crisis management. You've got the Berlin Crisis of 1961, which, uh, which did lead to the building of the Berlin Wall, but which he diffused, maintained a Western presence in, uh, in Berlin and West Berlin. Then in particular, of course, the management and diffusing of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the most dangerous crisis in the Cold War era. And as that crisis unfolded, he became increasingly effective. He remained cool under pressure. And by the end, he was absolutely determined to resolve it diplomatically and not by force. Um, and then you've got the, the, the periodic civil rights crises, uh, such as the Birmingham uh, crisis in the spring of 63, and again, very very good at remaining cool under pressure and handling those situations well. So that's what he was good at, dealing with short-term crisis situations. But on the other hand, what he wasn't good at was thinking long-term. And it's interesting, when Harold Macmillan, British Prime Minister of the day, met him, he sort of picked up on this, and he said, he said uh, privately about Kennedy, you know, very, very quick political operator, but I don't know if he really has a sense of the bigger picture. And if, if you think of Kennedy's record in terms of the long term, well, if you look at Vietnam, you know, when he becomes president, a few hundred US military advisers, uh, by the time he is assassinated, 16 to 17,000, a huge escalation. So he, whatever he would have done, and historians debate that, he massively deepened US involvement in Vietnam. And the long term ramifications of that we know were calamitous. If you look at this really interesting aspect of his presidency, which people often forget, if you look at military spending, Kennedy inherited a huge lead 
nuclear weapons over the Soviets. Soviets were a long way behind the arms race. Some, some estimates one see uh, indicates that Kennedy inherited a lead of whereby he had something like 17 times as many nuclear warheads as the Soviet Union when he became president. And yet he carried out, decided to carry out the biggest peacetime increase in US military spending in history up to that point. Now, it's not too hard to predict what, was, what would happen. And what did happen in the mid and late 60s is the Soviets responded with a huge military buildup of their own to close the gap. So by the 70s, for the first time in the Cold War, the Soviets did, roughly speaking, have parity with the United States in terms of, in ter in terms of military power. So paradoxically, in the long term, Kennedy's defence policies reduced America's nuclear, nuclear lead. Um, and look at... Well, and the, and the other... In terms of this issue, Kennedy's questionable ability to craft policy in the long term, Cuba is important because Kennedy does generally get high marks for his handling of the Cuban Missile Crisis, but a lot of historians criticise him for his policies before the Missile Crisis, and they argue he may have played a role in the coming of the crisis because he tried to get rid of Castro with the Bay of Pigs and Operation Mongoose, uh, he diplomatically isolated Cuba, economic sanctions... Uh, assassination attempts against this against Castro were plotted by the CIA. I think almost certainly with Kennedy's endorsement. So um, some historians make, make 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 the case that had Kennedy not carried out those hostile policies towards Castro and also this huge military buildup, then Khrushchev may well not have put missiles in Cuba, and therefore you would not have got a Cuban missile crisis. So you, know, you could make the case that in the long term, the negative consequences of Kennedy's policies included. A Cuban Missile Crisis, war in Vietnam, and the Soviets closing the gap in the arms race. At least to some extent, he was responsible for those things. The other negative about Kennedy's record as president is his ability to deal with Congress and to get his legislative programme through Congress. If you look at the number of bills he introduced and the, the amount of bills he got passed, mathematically, it looks pretty good if you compare it to other presidents. But if you look at his most important bills, his record is poor. The three most important bills he wanted to get through were Medicare, so medical care for the aged, uh, a sweeping education bill, and also by 1963, the Civil Rights Bill, which he introduced that summer to end racial segregation in the South, arguably the single most important piece of legislation in 20th century American history. He didn't get any of those bills through Congress, and it took his, the skill of his successor, Lyndon Johnson, to bring about Medicare, sweeping educational reform, and the passage of the Civil Rights Act to end segregation. So I think if you look at his overall record, it's a hybrid, it's a melange. There are, there, there are definite achievements, keeping the missile crisis, Berlin crisis, but there are definite failures. It's, it's a mixed bag. And I certainly don't think he was in the Abraham Lincoln, Franklin mm. Roosevelt category of transcendent great presidents. But not, not on the other hand, do I think he was in the sort of Warren Harding category of you know, very poor presidency, somewhere in the middle. Just the one thing I would add to that is, in my opinion, he becomes a better president as his presidency unfolds. Uh, we're all affected by experiences in life, and he was affected by his experiences as president. And two things in particular changed him profoundly. One was the Cuban Missile Crisis. He's pretty hawkish before then. But once the missile crisis takes place, he becomes much more concerned about the dangers of the arms race, the Cold War, and he becomes more determined to make the world a safer place. And so, in 1963, in the final year of his presidency, you have the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty signed, you have him delivering his American University speech 
which he called upon Americans to have a more positive attitude towards the Russian people. And the other thing that changes him is the civil rights crisis in Birmingham, Alabama in the spring of 63. So this was a a peaceful Mm. protest organised by civil rights leaders. And of course the the protesters were attacked. The the tapping organised by the local police commissioner. Dogs, electric cattle prods, water hoses used on the protesters. Kennedy saw all of this on television and the pictures in the newspaper and he said he felt sickened. He felt sickened by what he'd seen. And it's in the wake of that that he delivers, I think, the most important speech of his presidency, probably, on civil rights in June 1963, when for the first time in the 20th century, an American president defines racial equality as a moral issue, not just a political issue or constitute, but a moral issue for the American people. And he introduces the Civil Rights Bill to end segregation. So in the final year of his presidency, he becomes more progressive on domestic issues, on, on civil rights, and he becomes more committed to making the, the, the Cold War safer. So I think he is, he, he is becoming um, a more ambitious, bolder, and more progressive president as his time in the White House unfolds. And that's another part of the tragedy of what happens in Dallas, because uh, there's obviously a tremendous personal tragedy there, a man cut down in the prime of his life, uh, children losing a father, a uh, wife losing a husband, but there's also a political tragedy that he was becoming a more effective president uh, as his presidency unfolded. So I know this, this is hypothetical, but had Kennedy not been killed in 1963, and had he gone on to serve two terms, do you think historians would be agreeing with the public that he was one of the best presidents, might he have gone on to create a really lasting record? It's a, it's a really interesting question, and an important question, because as historians, we're supposed to be concerned with the past, what did happen. Mm. But as historians, we also have to respond to the historiography. What is the historical debate on the subject we're interested in? What have previous historians said? And if you look at the historical scholarship on Kennedy, quite a lot of it is about the hypothetical, what would have happened had he lived. So it's it's just important, it is an intrinsically important topic. And in terms of what would have happened, I think the three salient issues there are Vietnam, the Civil Rights Bill, and his personal life. So with, with Vietnam, as I said earlier, what he did do was to massively increase US military presence. So there's a huge increase in military advisers. He, he inherits this commitment from Dwight Eisenhower, a military hero president, to maintain a non-communist communist government in South Vietnam. He feels obliged to uphold that commitment. And after, it's interesting, there's a connection between Vietnam and the Bay of Pigs, because after the failure of the Bay of Pigs, Kennedy was embarrassed and mortified, and he said, you know, we have a problem of making our power credible. We need to make our power in the Cold War credible, and perhaps the place we can do it is Vietnam. So he, he was committed to waging the Cold War there. On the other hand, it's also the case that on a couple of occasions, the US military urged Kennedy and really exhorted him to send combat troops, and he always refused to do that. So if you look at something like Oliver Stone's film, JFK, for all its flaws, that's one point that he emphasises, which is legitimate, that Kennedy consistently refused to send combat troops. It's also true that after the Bay of Pigs, calamity, so the CIA organised invasion of Cuba using Cuban emigres, which fails, um, the biggest political embarrassment of the Kennedy presidency. After that, Kennedy is much more wary about advice he gets from the CIA and the military. So during the Cuban Missile Crisis, a lot of the hawkish advice he's getting to go in and carry out a military strike on Cuba is given by the military and the CIA. And he shows manifestly in the Cuban Missile Crisis that he's prepared to say no to them and to stand up to them. Extrapolating on, 
you can make the argument that if you put Kennedy in, in Johnson's shoes in 65 and had he had he been given the same advice including from the military to send troops to Vietnam he may have been more able than Johnson to say no on the other hand if you play out the hypothetical with Vietnam you have to factor in the 1964 presidential election if you think about the 1960 presidential election what Kennedy did on the issue of foreign policy and particularly on the issue of Cuba in his campaign against Nixon was in a way to move, move to the right of Nixon what he said in the autumn of 1960 is it's terrible. Castro's come to power in Cuba in 1959. What has the Eisenhower-Nixon administration done about it? Nothing. Elect me president and I will take robust action to get rid of Castro, which is exactly what he tries to do at the Bay of Pigs. So 1964, let's assume he would have been up against the same candidate that Lyndon Johnson was, which was Barry Goldwater, the most overtly right-wing candidate the Republicans have nominated uh, in the last century. So... Let's assume he would have done, adopted the same strategy, which has been tough on foreign policy. He did it with Nixon and Park because he wanted to stop Nixon accusing him, Kennedy, of being soft on communism. Presumably, he would have had the same impulse with Goldwater, which is to sound tough on foreign policy so Goldwater couldn't accuse him of being soft on foreign policy. And the biggest foreign policy issue in 64 being Vietnam for Kennedy. So would he have taken a, a, a tough stance on Vietnam in 64 that would have compelled him in 65 to carry out a hardline policy which would have resulted in war. You could play out the hypothetical that way. One other factor is the advisers would have been the same. One thing Johnson did was to retain Kennedy's main foreign policy advisers. So by 65, when Johnson decides to go to war in Vietnam, his Secretary of Defence, Robert McNamara, was Kennedy's Secretary of Defence. His Secretary of State is Dean Rusk, Kennedy's Secretary of State. His national security advisor is George Bundy, Kennedy's national security advisor, and all of those people told Johnson to go to war. So we know what advice Kennedy would have got. The one thing I would say about Johnson in defence of him, it's, it's in July 65 that essentially he decides to go to war in Vietnam and deploy you know, tens of thousands of combat troops. And you know when he held the key meetings to decide whether to go to war, almost every advisor told him he should go, apart from George Ball, his Undersecretary of State. So if you make the argument that Kennedy would not have fought in Vietnam, you have to make the case that he would have been able to have been incredibly independently minded to resist that pressure. And the other thing, I think, is in the end, you would have to make the case that Kennedy would have been prepared to accept a communist South Vietnam. That was the thing by 65. Presidents before then had always had three options with Vietnam. Send in troops and fight a war. None of them wanted to do that, especially not so soon after the Korean War walk away, accept a defeat, accept that South Vietnam was going to go communist. No one wanted to do that, partly for domestic political reasons. Or there was the middle option, send in a bit more money, a few more advisers, show a commitment, try and pop, pop up the government there, but not full-scale land war. The problem for Johnson by the summer of 65 is that middle option evaporated. It was fight or lose. So if you argue that Kennedy would not have fought a war in Vietnam, you have to make the case that he would have been prepared to accept a major Cold War defeat. So that's one big hypothetical. Mm. Um, the second one, as I say, is the Civil Rights Bill. Would he have managed to get it passed? Did he have the kind of political skills that Johnson showed in '64 to get it through Congress? As I say, you can argue that it's the single most important piece of legislation in 20th century American history to end racial segregation in the South. Either the single most important piece of legislation or one of the two or three most important pieces of legislation. So had he got that through, then that, that would have helped him create a great domestic policy legacy, as it did Lyndon Johnson. Uh, had he not got it through, 
and it would have added to this pattern of his first few years in the White House of failing to get some of his most important bills through. The third big hypothetical issue is actually his private life. In 1991, a historian, Thomas Reeves, published a book called A Question of Character that sold a huge amount of copies in America. And he argued that the foundation of all outstanding leadership is character. If you want great leaders, you need leaders with great character, with a moral compass, a basic understanding of the difference between right and wrong. And the problem with Kennedy, he argues, is that essentially he didn't have any character or moral compass, and that was partly because of the influence of his father. And so Reeves then goes on to explore Kennedy's private life, and he makes the argument that you can see this lack of character in his private life, philandering, use of drugs, alleged dealings with the mob, and that you can also see this in his policies as president. You know, secret war against Castro, escalation in Vietnam, slow to move on civil rights. So if you think about that theme of Kennedy's private life, it does raise the question of, let's assume he had a second term, that means he would have remained president until January 69. Would at some point his private life have created a huge political scandal that would have destroyed him and possibly resulted in impeachment? And um, the reason he was able to get away with it in the time he was president was because the press had a much more reverential attitude towards politicians. They didn't report on their private life in general. And Kennedy actually said, they can't touch me whilst I'm alive. When I'm dead, what do I care? Perhaps at some point, something would have come to light. And I'll just give you one example. Kennedy had huge numbers of affairs. I mean, it's sort of like reading about a Roman emperor like Caligula when you read about Kennedy's private life. It's quite astonishing. What's interesting, I think, about him psychologically, very unusual human trait is that he just doesn't have guilt. And so he did what he felt like. And also, you know, his ill health, he had terrible health problems his whole life major spinal problems, Addison's disease, other other illnesses. And I think he also thought, well, I'm not going to be around a long time, so I may as well enjoy myself whilst I can. But one of the sexual liaisons he had was with a woman called Ellen Romish, who was married to a West German military man based in the Washington area. And it seems that she was unhappy with how much her husband was making, so she decided to become a high-class call girl, a prostitute. Mm. And she did the rounds in Washington, including senior politicians, including Kennedy, now, what Kennedy didn't know when he had sexual encounters with her is that she was not originally from West Germany. She was from East Germany, and she had been a member of Communist Party organisations. She wasn't a spy, or a spy, but she easily could have been. And uh, sexual blackmail is a standard espionage technique. So his private life, it didn't, but his private life, one could see, could have des- destroyed his presidency something like that had been fully revealed to the public. The other really notable example is an affair he had with a woman called Judith Campbell. This is probably better known, but he was introduced to Judith Campbell in 1960 by Frank Sinatra, and he began an affair with her, which lasted through until 1962, when J. Edgar Hoover saw him and said that the FBI was aware of his affair with her, and at that point Kennedy began to bring the relationship to a close. But at the same time that he was having this affair with Judith Campbell, she was seeing Sam Giancarna, the head of the Chicago Mafia, the leading criminal in the country, a man the FBI wanted to put behind bars. So as she says in her memoirs that the relationship was essentially platonic, but whatever, you have a situation where you have a woman seeing the President of the United States and then going and seeing the head of the Chicago Mafia. And if a President did something like that today and that story surfaced, they would be impeached, I have no doubt, and would be removed from office. Well, could, could a scandal like that have broken, I don't know, in 1966 or 67? So his private life does raise the issue of whether his character foibles, his private life, 
could have created this scandal that could have destroyed him. If I was a betting man, I'd say no. I'd say no, that he probably would have gone through to his presidency untouched in that way. So I think those are the key hypothetical questions. The one other point that needs to be made is the pattern of 20th century presidencies, which is second terms are almost invariably worse than first terms. Teddy Roosevelt, the last couple of years of his presidency, were in many ways the most problematic. With Franklin Roosevelt, the one unquestionably, in my opinion, great 20th century president, the president who dealt with the two greatest challenges of the 20th century, the collapse of the economy and the challenge posed by fascism in World War II. Uh, even with Roosevelt, it was the second term, which was really, really difficult. Uh, and in many ways a failure. You've got the whole controversy over Roosevelt's attempt to pack the Supreme Court. He starts to fail to get his New Deal legislation through Congress and so on. Nixon's second term, Watergate. Reagan's second term, Iran-Contra. Clinton's second term, Monica Lewinsky, constitutional crisis scandal. George Bush Jr., by by a second term, incredibly unpopular president. So if that pattern had continued with Kennedy, then it suggests that his record wouldn't have got stronger. Things may have got worse. And that suggests he wouldn't have gone on to become a better president. But as I said earlier, it does seem that in the final year of his presidency, he was bolder, more imaginative than he was in the early part of his presidency. So you have to think about the intersection of those two factors. The fact that second terms tend to be worse than first, but in Kennedy's case, he's seen to be becoming a better president. As it's a hypothetical question, you can't establish your point of view definitively, but I think those are the major issues. With the hypothetical question of what he would have done had he lived. And you just mentioned some of the character failings that Kennedy had and that we all are well aware of nowadays. So why do you think it is that despite the fact we all know of all of Kennedy's faults, he's still, in the public mind, viewed so much higher than he is in the scholarly mind? It's a really good question, actually, and it's one I've thought about. The story about Kennedy's womanising broke in the 70s. It became widely known that he'd had an affair with Marilyn Monroe, that he'd had an affair with a woman called Mary Meyer, Judith Campbell, who I've mentioned, and others as well. It sort of came down in the 70s. And a theory on the question is this, which is you have to look at the construction of Kennedy's original image. And if you look at the construction of his original image, one key part of it was sex appeal. And this isn't just something that happened during his presidency. If you go back to his first campaign for Congress in 1946, in his late 20s, and actually he's... You know, he's fought in the war and he's been ill. So he looks, if you look at pictures of Kennedy in 46, he looks gaunt and emaciated. But he just seemed to have this sort of erotic charisma. There are stories of him giving speeches in schools where all the girls run around chanting Sinatra, 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 i.e. Kennedy has the same sexual charisma as the crooner Frank Sinatra. In the 60 campaign, this was a big factor, his, his erotic appeal. And particularly after the television debates, the famous television debates with Nixon the first time there'd been televised presidential debates and there were four that year but it was the first one that was important and after the first debate when he went on to the campaign trail a huge numbers of women and the journalists began to use terms to describe them jumpers leapers and there were the stories of some women sort of moaning his name in the, in the crowds that watched him so if you think of something probably the most iconic moment in terms of popular culture in the Kennedy presidency if you think of Marilyn Monroe singing happy birthday to you there you had the biggest sex symbol in the world, as one observer put it, the most famous body in the world, performing for him. And that adds to his own erotic credentials. And also, he was aware of it, and he, he paid huge amount of attention to how he looked. He was very, very fashion conscious. The cut of his suits, the cut of his shirts, 
his hair. He was obsessed with his hair. And he, George Bundy, his national security advisor, once came into his office and he had all these female hair specialists putting gel in his hair and so on. And Bundy made a sarcastic comment about it and Kennedy made a comment back about, well, you don't need to worry about it because you're bald. So if you dissect Kennedy's image precisely, why is it that he had such a powerful image? And there are various reasons. One is his erotic appeal, his sex appeal. Now, during his lifetime, part of that was not the fact that he was a philanderer. That wasn't part of it. But in a way, when all these stories emerged from the 70s onwards, that he'd been a philanderer and a womaniser, on one level it's shocking, but on another level it actually reinforces this idea about Kennedy that existed during his lifetime, that he was a sex symbol. So I think it, it adds to his sex symbol status and it adds to his glamour. OK, so still talking about Kennedy's reputation and his image, how far do you think his mode of death has affected his legacy that we have of him today? I think it's an important element because it was obviously a tragic, traumatic event. And so people felt enormous sympathy for him, goodwill towards him, horrified at what had happened. And there was this statistic that at some point after the assassination, they did a poll and 65% of Americans claimed to have voted for Kennedy in 1960, when in fact it was less than half. So the assassination has an impact. What's important about it is not just the event itself that he's assassinated, cut down in his prime, it's a violent act. It's how it's used. And what's most important here is the role played by Jackie Kennedy. If you think about what she went through on the day of the 22nd of November and the week that followed, it must have been incomprehensibly horrific. I mean, to be sitting in the car with your husband and then to have his brains blown out next to you, despite the grief she must have felt, in a very clear-sighted way, she was conscious of his historical reputation. And she was very concerned about leaving his reputation to historians. She said that. Bitter old men, she described them as. And so a week after the assassination, she invited the journalist Theodore White to the Kennedy home at Hyannisport for an interview for Life magazine. And so he met with her, and uh, she gave the interview. And very cleverly, she planted this idea which White would use. She mentioned to him that on evenings, late at night, she and her late husband, President John Kennedy, liked to listen to this musical Camelot by Alan J. Lern and Frederick Lowe, hit musical at the time, uh, about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And what she was suggesting was that Kennedy had been such a great leader, such a graceful, inspiring leader, that he brought to mind the tales of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. He evoked a sense of the Arthurian legend. So Theodore White... When he wrote up his article for Life magazine, he emphasised the Camelot theme and relayed the story she had told. And he kept coming back to it, the theme of Camelot. And so, at that point, Kennedy's reputation, his presidency, his legend, has a name, which is Camelot. In fact, quite interesting story, because from Hyannisport, he dictates the article down the phone to the editors at Life magazine. And one of the editors says, you know, aren't you overplaying the Camelot theme? And she's in the room, and she says to Theodore White, no, I want it in, keep it in. So she very cleverly associates in the public mind her husband's presidency with this mythological figure. What she's doing is she's using mythology to counter history. And in the end, she won. She succeeded, despite the attempts of revisionist historians from the 1970s to get Americans to change their opinion of Kennedy. Most regard him as a great president. So in the end, her view, her Camelot view, has prevailed rather than the view of later, more critical historians. So the assassination is important in terms of how revered he is today, but it's also Jackie Kennedy's role after the assassination as well. And also what's important is the way in which JFK, with the particular assistance of his father, constructed his image before the assassination. 
So I don't think any president in American history has constructed such a multifaceted image. And that also accounts for its longevity and its power and the fact that inspiring image still exists today. If you go through it, 1940, he writes his first book, Why England Slept. 16 years later, his second, Profiles and Courage. It's a question over whether he actually wrote it. But that second book, Profiles and Courage, wins the Pulitzer Prize. So together, those things establishes Kennedy's image as a man of letters. 1943, his boat, PT-109, is attacked during the war. He forms valiantly after that. He's decorated. He becomes a war hero. 1946, he's elected to Congress when he's in his 20s. He acquires a reputation as a precocious politician. He also acquires a reputation as a sex symbol. And also, he becomes a symbol of family life. People are aware of his very large, interesting family, all his siblings. His father's a public figure, a businessman who went on to become ambassador to this country. 53 onwards, he's married to Jackie Kennedy. So people see him as an individual politician, but they see him as a representative of a dynasty. In the 1960 campaign, the biggest issue for much of it is his religion, his Catholicism. That's a political problem for Kennedy, to show that his allegiance is going to be to the American Constitution and not to the Pope, Rome. But the whole premise of that debate is that he's a genuine man of faith, that he takes his religion seriously. And in the inauguration, another element is added to Kennedy's image, and that's the idea of Kennedy as royal, the pageantry of the, the occasion. Jackie Kennedy's princess-like appearance. Kennedy had Robert Frost, the eminent elderly American poet, great poet, read poetry for him. Journalists noted how this was like the British royal tradition of having a poet laureate. So by the time he becomes president, by the time you get into his presidency, he already has an image as man of letters, war hero, precocious politician, sex symbol, symbol of family life, man of faith, and uh, a royal symbol as well. Incredible, rich hybridity to his image. It's interesting to compare him to Obama, because I think that's the one point of comparison, Kennedy's election in 60 to Obama in 2008, in terms of the excitement they generated. And Obama also had a very alluring image, and there's no overlap between the two. Both were young, charismatic, fine speakers, but Obama didn't have a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, he hadn't been a war hero. So as fantastic as his image was, it actually wasn't as wide-ranging and as multifaceted and as powerful as Kennedy. So as to why that potent image has endured, it's partly the assassination, it's partly the efforts made by Jackie Kennedy after the assassination, but it's also the efforts JFK himself made with the assistance of his father in shaping his image during his own lifetime. That was Mark White, Professor of History at Queen Mary, University of London. Mark's book, Kennedy, A Cultural History of an American Icon, has recently been published by Bloomsbury. And Mark has also written a piece on Kennedy for our December edition, which is on sale now. And for more on the story of JFK's assassination, head to our website, historyextra.com. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, 
File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Elizabeth of York was one of the founders of the Tudor dynasty and mother to one of England's most notorious kings. Yet she remains an underestimated queen in her own right, says best-selling historian Alison Weir. Our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, caught up with Alison in the green room at the recent BBC History magazine History Weekend in Malmesbury to find out why Elizabeth is so often overlooked. Um, so Alison, we're um, at Mom, our Malmesbury um, History Weekend event and you've very kindly um, taken sort of 10-15 minutes out of your schedule to have a chat with me about Elizabeth of York. Um, it's your recent book that's just come out, your biography of Elizabeth. Well, I think one of the most widely debated questions about Elizabeth, and um, something that I have heard, is whether she actually planned to marry her uncle Richard III. What's your thoughts on this? I've changed my thoughts on this oh, because right. many years ago I published a book on the princes in the tower. Mm-hmm. And at that time, in the wake of A.N. Kincaid's translation of this, this key letter mm-hmm. uh, in which she, she is asking the, du- the Duke of Norfolk to be a mediator for her in this marriage to the king. Yeah. And she's very keen and urgent for it. And she says, I am his in heart and in body and in all. In other words, in body had not been translated until 1979. When I was researching this book, that was something that people, historians were thinking, and body, Mm, hello, what's going on here? But I don't read it that way now, this distance in time. I read that more as a declaration of of loyalty to the king, that she would sort of, you know, Mm. all of her was, was ready to be loyal to him. I read it more from that point of view. So yes, I do think she wanted this marriage. I think she was proactive in pushing for it, mm. uh, not because she loved him. I think she didn't know him very well because right. he'd lived mostly in the north. He did come to court occasionally. And um, I think also, I mean, they, they hadn't had much opportunity to meet each other during right. his reign. She'd been in sanctuary for a lot of it and she'd probably been living in Wiltshire down here. Oh, right. Interesting. Yes. <laughs> After she came out. Yeah. But um, because I think she saw this as the only way of safeguarding the future of her family. If she married the king, her mother and her sisters, mm. she and her sisters had been declared bastards. Yeah. They had much, a much better, he would have had to legitimated her. Goodness mm. knows how he would have got around this. The logistics are horrendous. Yeah. But there's no doubt he did, he did you know, have this plan to marry her. We've got the evidence of one of his counsellors, mm. the, the, yeah, the Croyland Chronicler. And uh, and so yes, I think that's what she was. I mean, Richard was going. Richard was young. He was going to you know, it's going yeah. to reign for some time in everybody's expectations. It seemed the way of securing a future for her family, and it's in her. Na- it's in keeping with what we know of her nature. And what do you think reaction would have been if that had happened? How do you think people would have reacted to that? The reaction was horrendous because he had a wife at this time, mm. and in one of the um, one of the well, we ha- we can't be sure the certainty of the text. Part of the text is burned in the Cotonian fire of seventeen thirty one, and it looks as if the last sentence is, "And she feared the queen would never die." Um, because I suppose she felt that her position was so insecure mm. that, you know, that I want this marriage to hurry, hurry up and happen. Yeah. It's not so callous as it sounds if you read it that way. Um, but when, as soon as the Queen did die, 
uh, there was an, and then the word went round. The rumours were going round that he was going to marry Elizabeth. There was a public outcry, and there were rumours he poisoned his wife to that end. Oh. He denied it. He, he his counsellors all warned him and urged him not to marry Elizabeth because mm. of the scandal that would come about. Also because they feared that she would take vengeance on them as queen right. uh, for what their their part in his you know overthrow of her yeah. brothers and you know having her and her siblings declared bastards so he had to publicly repudiate that mm. so i mean if she was prepared to marry him i mean at the time there was a lot of suspicion that he had murdered her two brothers yes there was oh um, yes and, and she would have known about this mm. so did she did she disregard this was was kind of protecting herself and the well, you see there are two there are two points during mm. richard iii's reign when her mother and, and she Probably her mother was behind this plan to marry as well, her yes. mother Elizabeth Whitfield. Um, she uh, went, made a decision that seems completely at variance with what she would have done, knowing that Richard, or believing, mm. as I think they did, that Richard had murdered the princes. And one was Elizabeth Whitfield let her ch- daughters leave sanctuary. Well, the sanctuary was surrounded with a ring of steel. The girls had no need to be there because the right of sanctuary was claimed by people who were fleeing the law. Mm. And as Buckingham appointed, the Duke of Buckingham pointed out earlier that when, when Richard, that their brother was literally forced out of sanctuary, mm. um, when the abbey was surrounded by a ring of steel, it was still under siege yeah. at this time. Um, Elizabeth, they, they'd been there for, oh goodness, nearly a year. Uh, they have no money. They're at, they're at the abbot, the charity of the abbot. It's compromising the abbot's relations with the king. They can't stay there forever. Richard issued very public guarantees, guaranteeing the future safety of the daughters and to arrange marriages for them. He didn't guarantee the safety of their brothers. No. Which no. is quite significant. So that is why Elizabeth Whitfield probably thought she had no choice because Buckingham's rebellion with Henry Tudor had failed. Yeah. Henry Tudor wasn't... Prospects seemed poor at that time. And... She had no choice. She really had to come out of sanctuary. They would have been forced out, just yeah. like the, the, the younger son had been. And also at this time, I think um, her mother, Elizabeth Woodville, was um, plotting with Margaret Beaufort to, to betray her to Elizabeth. To, yes, yes, um, to Henry. Henry. This, is, this is a bit earlier. So this, she, is, this is in the time mm-hmm. of Buckingham's Rebellion, the previous autumn. So she was, so that was autumn. a little bit. The Rebellion had failed. Buckingham was executed in the beginning of November. Mm. Henry Tudor's ship had got founded and sent back to Brittany in a storm. Mm. And so in March, Elizabeth Whitfield is pressured to send, let her daughters out of out of sanctuary it's not doing Richard's reputation any good to have them in there you know but I mean she really has no choice the abbey is under siege they could have forced the girls out at any time it's compromising to the abbot she had no money it was the way forward to come out and and it's the same mentality that informs Elizabeth's decision and probably her mother's marry the king himself because he's not no, no one could have touched them I mean, to, uh, the, you know, the way it sounds to me is that she was she was a bit of a pawn, really. To, she you know, was. She was. But I think that I mean, she herself would have had to have consented to it. Yeah. And um, I think it's in keeping with what we know of her nature later on. She was quite. She was a self-sacrificing person. Mm. And we've got another instance of that when um, when Prince Arthur dies much later. In 1502, she's married to Henry VII. Her last pregnancy was mm. so bad that her life was despaired of. Yeah. And because I believe that she had a condition called iron deficiency anemia. And that's what killed her eventually. And repeated pregnancies can deplete a woman's reserves of iron. Right. And that can cause all sorts of problems. But she said to Henry, 
as soon as she they heard the news she went she hastened to comfort him mm. and she said and god is still where he was and we are both young enough that must have cost her something to yeah. say it so this is in keeping with her yeah sacrificing so, herself for her her sisters and yeah i mean and again the, the you're talking about the relationship between elizabeth and her husband and um, mm. there's a lot that's been said about how Henry didn't trust her, how she was kind of ruled by her, her mother-in-law. She didn't have a lot of say and influence. quite a bit to say about that in the talk. Um, but, um, uh, <laughs> Do no, you agree uh, with that? I think when Henry married her, there is, maybe he saw her as a member of the House of York, but as the enemy. Mm. Uh, we are, unfortunately, our views are coloured by those of Sir Francis Bacon, who didn't like Henry, wrote no. a biography of Henry, didn't like Henry. Henry because, in particular in relation to Elizabeth, because he felt that Henry had um, undermined her title to the throne, which was better than his, mm -hmm. and that he had not acknowledged it, and he, you know, he, he wouldn't acknowledge that he had the better claim through marriage to her, yeah. and that he should perhaps have reigned jointly with her. Henry VIII acknowledged it, that mm. the throne really descended through his mother, but Henry VII never would. And so I think this colours Bacon's perceptions. Yeah. You know, he said his hatred of the House of York extended into it, not just into his council chamber, into his the councils, but his chamber and bed. <laughs> so this is what Bacon is saying. And we've got the report of a couple of Spanish envoys who mm -hmm. say that she lived a miserable life and she was subjugated by the king and his mother. Mm. The historical evidence belies that. And if you look at the context in which this remark was made, yeah. she's suffering the discomforts of early pregnancy. Right. So, so she's not going to look very happy no. anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also, this is a time when there's great worry over pretender Perkin mm -hmm. Warbeck. Yeah. So it, it's, you've got to look at the context. in which It's, 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 it's a one outsider's opinion. Yeah. And balance that against all the evidence of Henry kindness between Henry and Elizabeth and this very touching um, report we have of what how they comforted each other mm. when Arthur died. But I mean the fact that I mean we're going back a long way ahead to 1502 for that. Yeah. Look early in the marriage by November 1487 when he had her crowned, he had a crown with more magnificence than he had himself crowned to underline her dynastic importance. So it doesn't really sound like... You no, know. no, he wouldn't have done that if he didn't no. feel like that. I think by then he'd come to realise he could trust her. Yeah. And we have evidence of her, him confiding very high-level state secrets to mm. her. And also of, of um, that she, he allowed her as much influence as any queen could enjoy within her own traditional sphere. That is in dealing with um, ambassadors and in, in arranging the marriages of her children, in which she was traditionally supposed to interest herself, yeah. and she certainly did, and in bringing up her children. Yeah. So you see, that's her sphere, and she was given quite a lot of autonomy in that respect. Yeah. As far as Margaret Beaufort is concerned, I do feel there is this perception that modern writers overlaid overlaid it with their own perceptions yeah. of mother-daughter-in-law relationships and we have margaret Beaufort's. there's a mythology that's been built up I in really recent sorry years for her, about margaret mm. Beaufort, and it's just absolute rubbish yeah. um because we've got to i mean john fisher who was a man of great integrity later was executed for standing up to his principles for yeah. against henry the eighth um said in he was her confessor and he said in his funeral sermon that everyone all who knew her loved her right there is nothing in her dealings with Elizabeth to suggest otherwise. So why do you think this is... This is where is Because this too from? many people have listened to... The, read this Spanish report. Right. Which says she was kept in subjugation and she didn't like it. Now, 
who's to say there wasn't one occasion where she just looked a bit fed up? <laughs> As we all do. Yes, exactly. I mean, could you actually go judge a whole relationship on mm. what you see in one instance against all the instances of them working together when they both were of one mind about something? Yeah. This is what's far more important that, that they seem that, and we've got lovely accounts of them enjoy sharing a joke with the king. Yeah. It shows a much more easy relationship. So I do think that this has been rather dis- very distorted. Yeah, it sounds like it. Mm. Um, and of course, in 1491, she gave birth to the, the, probably one of our most well known teachers, yes, yes. Henry VIII. Who was that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, what sort of influence was she able to exert over her son, and, and what do you think, what impact do you lot. think she had on, on his life you know, later on? Quite a lot, because, she, because there was a tradition that had been built up by her father mm. that the heir to the throne, the eldest son, would be sent to Ludlow to learn the business of kingship in governing the council of the marches on the brink of edge of his principality. Mm. And he would be, always be identified in the culture of monarchy with the king because he was the heir. Yeah. But the younger son and the daughters were associated with the mother. Right. Now, Henry, young Henry, was brought up with his sisters at Elton Palace largely, mm-hmm. but they did move around. They used other palaces like Hatfields and yeah. we know that. And they all, had, they all had their own attendants, but sometimes the attendants moved between households, but they were all kept together. And Elizabeth was with them quite a lot because yeah. they weren't far from the court with all the Thames Valley palaces. Mm. And we, we know that David Starkey has actually compared Elizabeth's handwriting with Henry's and it's enough the similarity is enough to show that she must have taught him really to some oh, degree yeah. and that that implies a degree of you know yeah. of regular closeness yeah. and so yes she but in some ways she may have been a distant figure but mm. i do think that when she died he was 11 and his grief is and we know we've got we've just there's just been recently uncovered new evidence of him grieving for how, how well it, well it was known that he was grieving for yeah. her we have his own letter testifying to his grief written some years later Um, but I think he was too young to see any flaws in his mother to him she probably appeared a figure of queenly perfection against whom none of his wives would ever live up to scratch so you think perhaps that did influence and later in life some of his actions I think it did Mm. because queen she is essentially the last medieval queen yeah um, you could say Catherine of Aragon. Catherine of Aragon was more involved politically. Um, if Elizabeth, we don't, we don't, we, I mean, if she did try to influence Henry, it was in private. And clearly her influence was known to be worth having because there were many influential and powerful people who actually sought her patronage with gifts. So they must have known that yeah. it was worth having that patronage. But it's very hard to measure the patronage, the influence of queens, because it's exercised in private. Yeah. You know, and so, but she is the last, she is the, she conforms to the ideal of queenship Then that was then expected. Uh, the queen should be a mirror of the Virgin Mary. Mm. She had, queens were allowed to wear their hair loose when they were married as, as in token, this token virginity. Right. Because it mirrored the Virgin Mary. Mm. And Henry probably grew up seeing his mother very much in this ideal way. And when his wives deviated, I think this is where the problems came in, because otherwise Henry was a good husband. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't sound like it, a man. You know. <laughs> no, but I mean, if you look at the way he lived with his wives yeah. and how, when, when things were okay, I mean, you know, with Catherine, for many, Catherine of Aragon, for many, many years, you can see this, there is domestic harmony hmm. with, with sadnesses, obviously, and there are, there are storms too sometimes. Yeah. But with Anne Boleyn, it's a very different story. Anne Boleyn breaks the mould completely. Yeah. She doesn't conform. 
to this you ideal. To her. <laughs> Jane Seymour did. Yes. And do you? And how do you think she balanced? Up? Because obviously their, their marriage was to bring the the white and the red roses together. Yes. Um, but there was still a lot of friction between the two, oh, the yes, two there families. Were. There were. How did she? She was sort of in the middle. How did I she wish to that? God I knew. Mm. This is the big gap in Elizabeth's life. It's the fact that there's. I mean, you imagine Perkin Warbeck yes. claims to be her brother. What the hell did she feel about that? I don't know. Do and that, according to Bacon, the news came blazing and thundering into England or something yeah. like that. And so we don't know what she thought, but we do know that, that she stayed loyal to Henry and mm. that he did feel he could trust her to the extent that he sent Warbeck's wife to, into her household. He must have trusted Elizabeth enough not to know, to know that they wouldn't plot. Yeah. You know, and that, but this is very late in the day after he's discovered but Warbeck's I say true identity because there's still questions hanging over Perkin Warbeck. It makes you wonder what, what she actually thought. Did she actually think that could be her brother? Yes, and if it was, just think of the implications mm. because he was the rightful king. Yeah. Do you just think about the knock-on effect of that? It must have been torture. Yeah. You can imagine that. Very, very worrying for her. And she, I mean, she must, she must have, she, she would have seen Warbeck at court. He, he lived at court. Yeah. One, one historian, I can't remember who, said they were kept at a distance. There's nothing really? I could find to support that. Yeah. She, she couldn't fail but to have seen him. No. You know? And do, so, do you think she was? Where do you think her loyalties actually lie? Um, with was, Henry. With Henry, was and it? her children. Oh, yeah. With Henry, yes, I think so too. And do you think so? Uh, what do you think her mother felt about that? Her mother was dead by then. Oh, right. Well, her mother, just about the year just after Warbeck yeah. emerged, yes. And she was in poor health probably by yeah. then. Yeah, OK. She was alive during the Simnel, but Simnel claimed to be the Earl of Warwick. Yeah. And that's not the same thing. But even so, Elizabeth had... It was mostly her relations on the Yorkist side who fell foul of the Tudor king, you know, mm. of Henry VII. I mean, she wasn't alive to say Henry VIII, but they were a constant thorn in the side. And she must have known, um, well, I don't say she must have known, I mean, she, the Earl of Warwick, who they said couldn't tell a goose from a cape and was <laughs> shut in the tower from childhood, yeah. no no education, nothing, awful life. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, he was, it looks very much as if an agent provocateur was put into the tower to lure him and Warbeck into a plot right. to get rid of them, because the King of Spain was intimating that Catherine of Aragon would never come to England, you know, while there was any doubtful drop of royal blood. <laughs> And so, yes, but I mean, she, I don't think Elizabeth would have known about that. Yeah. Do you think Elizabeth of York is a, a, quite an overlooked queen compared to some of our... She is, and the thing is, I think the reason she's been over... I think a lot of people um, are interested in here. I mean, the, the response I've had so far at events and to the book, mm. um, there is a lot of interest in her. But I also think that she's... A century ago, she would have been seen as a, a, a great queen, you know, mm. a good, a really, you know, a queen worthy of attention, yeah. because she conformed to traditional ideals. She's passive, not active. Yeah. Whereas Margaret of Anjou, one of her predecessors, who fought on for Henry on Henry the his, his, you know, fought, fought his corner basically yeah. in the Wars of the Roses, was seen by contemporaries as a great and strong laboured woman, and she <laughs> certainly shouldn't be getting herself involved in politics, <laughs> and that should be in the nursery, you know, basically, yeah. you know, but. Um, well, nowadays we tend to see people like Margaret and Eleanor of Aquitaine and Isabella of France, women who are proactive, yes, as more interesting and more worthy of study. Maybe the more passive Elizabeth, you know, we can't say that about her. I think perhaps, yeah, and perhaps she's sort of almost seen as weaker because of that, because you yes. don't necessarily see her. Yes, that's true, but I think that there's a lot to respect in her, and what, what mm. comes across is her innate goodness and kindness. Yeah. 
it doesn't it doesn't make headlines but it's you can she was if I say god the princess diana of her day but if you mm. look at the scale of mourning and you look at when she died yeah. and how popular she was yeah. um she and, and there was every good reason for her to be popular yeah and i think she was a genuinely good woman who went through a very difficult life and you know a lot of very demanding life in many ways so was it is it that about her that inspired you to write this biography of her i didn't know that i was this was i didn't know about this but not to the degree i did mm. until i actually came to study her and got to like her more and more because I mean you should stay objective as a historian but you do end up with an opinion it's quite hard I imagine yes Mm. that's true I mean people say who do you like the most of all you've written about we how can you say I've never met them (laughs) (laughs) I mean you you write historical fiction yes I do yeah and how does your approach to to both you know straight history and historical fiction do do they differ at all in your research and things like that well the fiction I've written is largely been based on research I've already done because I don't Mm. have time to re-research for historical fiction basically but I have got one or two books in the pipeline that you know they're going to suggest that I will need to do some research and that's going to be a lot of fun I'm really looking forward to it Uh, I did do a bit of research for the last novel which featured Lady Catherine Gray and Catherine Plantagenet were two stories yeah and um but no, I mean, you do follow the same discipline. I I'm, I'm always have this quest for authenticity. You know, mm. you do as, you know, with fiction, I do think it's important because I've, I do a lot of events. I get a lot of feedback yeah. online and through letters. And I know that people care that what's in a historical novel is near the truth. Yeah. Because they want their history that way. A lot of people don't want to read history books. So mm. they, want, they want it through historical novels. And that's how I came to history originally, yeah. through historical novels. Oh, right. And uh, then I went to history books and sort of, you know, because I wanted to know what the truth was, yeah. you know. And so I, I care a lot about accuracy in historical fiction. I think that if you make up anything, you should... I mean, you have to fill in gaps, obviously. Mm. You have to use... But you have to be, I think, informed enough to fill those gaps credibly so that it's credible within the context of what we know about the character. Yeah. If it's a real historical character, you have to do them justice. Yeah. But where you're inventing something, and I invented in my last novel a supernatural thread, and my two heroines had a quest to see what had happened to the prince in the tower, I've made it very plain in the author's note that that, that didn't happen. That was just done for... It was the, the, yeah. It's an authentic frame for a, for a mystery. Yeah. And finally, have you enjoyed this weekend? I've had a fantastic time so far. I got here at lunchtime, had a nice lunch, and mm-hmm. I went to Tracy Borman's event this afternoon. Right. Third time I've heard her talk. But that is a really good book. It's excellent. Excellent. And I loved it. You're looking forward to your talk later. Oh, thank you. I always do, yes. I'm really looking. It's, it's lovely. Whenever, however many times you do a talk, and I've done this about three times already now, yeah. um, you're sharing it with a new audience and you're imparting this the fruits of what you've been researching for quite a while and there's something startling that emerged and I always like to get to that bit well thank you very much for (laughs) thank you very much thank you that was Alison Weir discussing Elizabeth of York Alison's most recent book Elizabeth of York the first Tudor Queen was published recently by Jonathan Cape and you can read Alison's feature on the subject in the December issue of BBC History magazine which is out now and also contains articles on Alfred the Great, the Plantagenets, the Industrial Revolution, and, as I mentioned earlier, JFK. You can get hold of our December issue in all good news agents and digitally. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com, and we might well read out your message in a future episode. One listener who got in contact recently was Jenna Caporn. Jenna writes, I'm originally from Australia currently living in Canada, 
but spent two years in England and completely fell in love with the place. I adore your magazine and buy it when I find it, but I wanted to write to specifically express my utter delight in your podcasts. I take great pleasure in listening to the high-quality talks on a wide variety of topics, and I love how passionate the historians you invite to talk are about their fields. Thanks a lot for your message, Jenna. Now, you can also keep in touch with us on social media. You can follow us on Twitter at History Extra. Plus, of course, we're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. And don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find history news, blogs, galleries, features, quizzes and more. Next week, we'll be talking to Simon Heffer about the Victorians and Adrian Tinniswood will be telling us about an influential transatlantic family from the 17th century. Do join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded on location in London and Malmesbury and produced by Jack Fletcher. Jack Fletcher.